0: Welcome to 5th Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with David Brush, the Chief Investment Officer of Spanish real estate company Merlin Properties, to learn more about the dynamics of the Spanish real estate industry, from increasing institutionalization to the challenges of retrofitting old historic buildings in Spain's city centers. David also shares his thoughts around how global trends, such as the decline of urbanization, will impact the commercial office sector enjoy the conversation. Well, David, uh, thank you so much for joining. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I, I guess maybe just to start, David, can you just give your background and the background of, of Merlin for people that aren't familiar with Merlin?
1: Sure. Happy to do it. Um, Merlin is a young company. We really started uh, a little over six years ago. Uh, and all of us, all the senior management that the, co-founders and the large part of the senior management had all worked together previously, um, mainly at Deutsche Bank, running the investment side of that that business. And then as many people know, Spain was one of the countries that was most affected by the global financial crisis. And uh, that had left a void in the market. A lot of the big players had been wiped out. Uh, Values dropped almost uh, 50% from peak to trough. And so we got together again at that point, we'd all gone off and done different things, but got together and said, we think there's a really good opportunity to come in and create a new entity um, with more, I think, uh, I would say transparency, more akin to what the uh, REIT industry was doing elsewhere. And so we created Merlin as a REIT, uh, went public in 2014, Did subsequent um, uh, follow-on offerings, uh, debt raising, to where today we're about a $12.5 billion asset uh, company um, focused in really three main categories. Offices, warehouse logistics, uh, and and retail. Um, And all in in, in Spain or anywhere else in Europe? Spain and Portugal only, so only Iberian Peninsula. And we're about 90% Spain, 10% uh, Portugal. I think our view was uh, we will be multi-asset, but regionally focused, um, because that's where the, that's where the expertise of most of the team is. I know I, you don't, you wouldn't think it from my accent, but uh, but the expertise and the uh, is is in is in the Iberian Peninsula, and uh, everyone else in the company is Spanish. I'm the only non uh, non Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious from, from your
0: perspective, I want to ask you about COVID um, and kind of the, your your response to it and what Spain is like now. But before even going into that, I'm actually just curious, what was the Spanish commercial real estate market like kind of pre-Merlin? Like what was the, the characteristics of the uh, commercial office economy in Madrid and in Barcelona?
1: Yeah, you know, interestingly... Th- it, from the ownership side first, it was a very, what I'll call, entrepreneurial, family-driven ownership. Pre-global financial crisis, there wasn't really an institutional market in Spain. A lot of family offices, uh, even the two big companies, Metro and Testa, um, they tended to be run a little more, a little more like family office fiefdoms. So there wasn't a really institutional market that existed, and the global financial crisis really changed all of that. So first of all, from an ownership standpoint, much more institutional, much more foreign capital in the market today than previously, because a lot of other a lot of foreign capital came in when we did our IPO. About 85% of our capital came from outside, largely North America. So you've got more foreign capital playing in the market, and I think it's a more professional market top to bottom mm-hmm. uh, that existed uh, previously in more transparency. So that change initially. Um, also the market, um, because of the, the, the crisis, you had this real revaluation that occurred in the market and everyone came in and then got in at a very much more attractive basis. Um, and so there was a lot of opportunity then to, to invest in the assets that you bought. So today, I think you're also finding there's significantly improving quality of office, warehouse logistics, a little less retail because retail, having started later, the product was a little more modern. But a lot of the office buildings and warehouse logistics, there was a real functional obsolescence built into it. And so you've seen, like us, we've had a 1 billion CapEx program over, that's been running two years now. We're two years into it. It was a five-year plan. Uh, Colonial is doing the same thing. Uh, GMP, a lot of the owners are now really going in and substantially improving the uh, the quality of the built environment. I used to laugh with my colleagues. I would say the U.S. and Spain are the opposite sides of the same coin. In the U.S., the private built environment is high quality the public infrastructure, let's just say not so much to being mm-hmm. kind. In Spain, it's the opposite. The public infrastructure is extraordinary. Rail uh, network, road networks, all having been relatively recently built when the EU money came in you know, after, uh, after the European formation of the European Union. But the built environment is of lesser quality. So now a lot of efforts being made in bringing that built environment up to standard to make it more um, to make it much more similar to the uh, to the private uh, infrastructure environment. So that's kind of I think that's what's happening today. You're seeing much more um, improvement of existing uh, product going on, much more refurbishment than new development. That's really interesting,
0: uh, and I, and I I've had that impression to some extent when I've
1: yeah.
0: when I've been not just in Spain but just in in Western Europe. There is this dichotomy between you know, public investment and private, private investment. And part of it is I have to imagine that a lot of the assets are older, right? You're you're dealing with more retrofitting than, than in the U S.
1: Correct. And it's also a little more difficult, um, because there's so much in the way of historical preservation. You look at the city centers in a lot of these, um, uh, major metropolitan areas, whether it's Milan, whether it's Madrid, um, whether it's, uh, Paris, it's more difficult to, to even do retrofit in the city center. So that's why it's taken longer, I think, to upgrade. You know, there's this idea of maintaining the historical, um, uh, soul of the city. And so there's, it's, uh, it's a little more restrictive in terms of what you can do uh, over time. Um, and I think that's part of, part of the reason why it, it, it's lagged behind a bit.
0: And, and is, is Merlin's portfolio, is it both kind of what you think of in downtown Madrid, like the, the kind of older, beautiful facade buildings? Or is it also some of the new, um, almost more modern uh, or postmodern kind of design that you've seen on the, on the outskirts of the city? Is it both? Yeah.
1: We're a little bit both, but I would say it's actually less historical properties. Those tend to be in the hands of, these family offices or some of the more historical owners like mutual mutual waterlania, which is a big Spanish insurance company, which have owned their properties forever. Um, so ours is a mix of CBD, but more modern CBD. Uh, and then what we call new business area, which is not really suburban because it's immediately adjacent to the city center, um, say between the airport and the downtown. Uh, but it's a mix of the, uh, Uh, Of the two. Um, And it's interesting, I think now, last few years, everybody was talking about it's all about CBD, which, given the trends, was right. You know, to attract talent, companies went out to uh, more uh, um, uh, immediately adjacent areas to get cheaper rent. But they were finding it was more difficult to attract talent. So that whole suburban office wave, which happened in the US as well, it was happening in in Madrid, uh, less so in Barcelona, but uh, but in Madrid as well. And so our portfolio was a mix of CBD and new business area. And one of the things that I think that is, when you think about what are the impacts, long term impacts of COVID, one of the impacts I think is this idea of the distributed workforce mm-hmm. uh, and people working closer to home. I don't know if working from home is going to be a long lasting impact. But certainly people have found out that if I don't have to commute two hours per day, one hour in and one hour out, that's increased productivity. Um, And so the idea of working closer to home is something that I think is probably one of those trends that will be a long lasting trend. And so having a more diversified portfolio is something now that um, while initially people were saying, gee, you should all be CBD, you shouldn't have any of these more uh, uh, suburbanized uh, uh, portfolio. And now I'm not so sure that's going to be what, what the, um, the uh, trend is going forward. I can't say, you know, I have a, it's so difficult now to have visibility out in the future because everybody's reevaluating things. But that's one of the trends that I think um, I have a little more confidence is going to be a long-lasting trend.
0: And I'm curious, David, from your perspective, obviously, Spain was, in the Western world, you know, probably the, the first or the second country that was impacted by yeah. COVID in a very immediate, very crisis-like way. Um, can you just walk me through, and, and I guess to some extent, even today, you're further ahead in terms of reopening, I think, than where the U.S. is. True. What have the last nine months... Oops. Did I lose you?
1: No, I'm here.
0: Oh, sorry. I don't know what happened. Um, What have the last, uh, I guess, 90 days been like for you?
1: Yeah, it's been uh, been a whirlwind. And, uh, you know, it's a little like the reopening, right? As the reopening is happening in phases, our reaction and our decision-making has also had to move in phases. So Italy was the first. Italy was the first country that really started to demonstrate a high number of cases, and Italy shut down first. But Spain was behind Italy only in measured by weeks, two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so just for context, the Spanish government instituted the state of alarm on the 15th of March. So it was... The beginning of March, the first two weeks of March, when the caseloads were really increasing, and it was by the 15th of March that the the uh, Spanish government instituted the state of alarm, which basically allowed the central government to take control. Because Spain is a, um, the autonomous regions have a lot of, the reason they're called the autonomous regions is they have a lot of autonomy. And declaring a state of alarm that allowed the central government to to take control of how the um, crisis was going to be managed. Uh, So on the 15th, at that point, and we actually closed our offices in Maryland on the 11th of March because we had seen, we did a little earlier. And the initial was always, how do we operationally deal with this, right? Um, All of a sudden, you've gone from 150 people working in the offices to everyone working from home. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fortunately, we were well prepared in terms of, Security. So that move to working from home and having the right um, uh, uh, network security in place that was done quite uh, quite well without any without any issues. We have had many many more uh, attacks on the network, uh, but the network resiliency has proven to be quite good. Um, Then we also had to deal with how do we do? We have to keep our shopping centers open because we had essential services in all but one. So create the right teams, divide your team. So if anyone did get um, uh, contract the, uh, the virus, you could put that team in quarantine, but to have another team ready to go in place. So you so, had uh,
0: that, good duplication on the property management side.
1: Correct. Exactly. Uh, we kept our serviced offices open. Um, and so we had all of our hosts working remotely, but people could still go into the, uh, into the uh, flexible office space. So that was the first... I'd say two to three weeks, right? How do we, how do we make sure that operationally we're set up properly and that we're handling uh, our properties in a way that allows our, our our tenants the right kind of access. Then it started to move more toward, okay, now we have issues, right? Uh, um, And retail was the, I think the biggest, right? Because people were not, shops were closed. Um, So we, again, before the government came out with a policy, we instituted our own policy and we had a commercial policy that we applied um, across the entire portfolio. So anyone who was not able to open, so closed by government edict, we granted a a rent holiday uh, for a period uh, that was going to be the shorter of whenever the economy reopened or uh, the uh, end of July. And, uh, and it, to qualify for that, we basically said you have to be up to date on your current payments. You have to waive any right in the future to come back and bring COVID-related claims for relief. We want to shut off any uh, future liability. Right. And uh, you have to agree to pay your share of operating expenses because that's part of the, of the contract. So we'll, get, we'll, we'll give you the, the relief on rent, but you have to pay your share of operating expenses. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, the reason why we did that that way, Brendan, I think was we said, we, one, we want to get out in front of it rather than you know, wait for things to happen. Two, we want to do this in a way that's as non-litigious as possible. I think you've seen some others who've taken a different approach. There's going to be a lot of litigation that comes yeah. out of this. And personally, I don't think it's going to, you're going to be terribly successful in litigation when you're saying, I want people to pay rent when the government forced them to close.
0: Yeah. I don't see that
1: ending well for the landlords.
0: Especially in retail, right? Especially in
1: retail, and especially in places like Spain. You know, Spain is a civil law country. Um, so it's much more, it's much more um, uh, left to the judge and the courts to determine. They're not, they're not guided by any specific legal uh, imperative. Mm-hmm. So we took that view. We said we'll maintain our tenant relationships. And frankly, it worked well. Our tenants were very appreciative of that. We're going to foreclose any litigation in the future. Um, and we're going to make sure that we have our um, current operating expenses covered. So we did that, put that in place. Um, on the office of logistics, frankly, not much changed there. Our collection rates have been 99%. Um, we had people come to us and, and and make requests. But 95% of our office tenant base is large corporate. And so we said, look, you know, we're suffering, you're suffering, but I don't see any reason why, you know, we should be, grant- my bank isn't granting me any waiver on my interest. The Utility company is not granting me any waiver on my electricity. You know, we'll help the people that we know need to have help, but, uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, you know, enforcing the contracts. Right. And logistics, right. the same. It was quite, uh, that, that business has actually been quite, quite uh, resilient. Um, then I think we moved into, so after doing that, we then moved into, okay, now how do we, uh, account for, how do we manage the reopening? Because as you said, Spain is ahead of the curve. So we started to reopen three weeks ago. Uh, and so we had to make sure our shopping centers, what kind of, um, methods do we need to put in place? What kind of both sanitary and, uh, and screening methods, what do we have to do to make sure the workplace is, uh. Is safe for people to return, so that's kind of the wave that we've been through in terms of how we responded to the uh, to the crisis.
0: And so, three weeks in, what's it? What what are kind of some of the initial impressions? Is it are you seeing just sociologically the number of people going back to buildings, even though they are now open?
1: We track it every week. As of Monday, eight percent
0: occupancy. Wow! So 8, people are not. 8% of the people that were, you know, uh, going into and out of buildings in, Correct. you know, January are yeah. going into and out of buildings. We
1: measure January. it by every building has a maximum density permitted, and most tenants use that. Mm-hmm. So we use that as the core. Okay, this is the maximum number of people that would be in that building when it's full.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We apply our vacancy rate and say, you know, so we did, we have a core of the number of people and based upon the, and then we track everyone who's going every day. 8% of that maximum number have gone in as of last week. So people are very, very, um, you know, slowly returning. And when we were on surveys, because we're trying to figure out, you know, what, what staffing we need, most people are saying not till September. Wow. And that's the earliest. So not till September. And then even some are saying maybe not until the end of the, of the quarter. I don't think it's as much as in the U.S. where you have had a lot of people say, not till 2021.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but most of our tenants are saying well i 'm going to stay away until until uh, september and uh, that 's on the office side on the uh, retail side it 's been actually quite different we 've seen people coming back to the retail much more quickly, um, and right now in the in the phase that we 're in you 're only allowed to be at twenty five percent capacity that'll move to forty percent for a lot of the uh, um, uh, regions as they move to f- the, the following phase. Um, so, and in that case, we've seen some of our centers where we've actually had to limit people coming in because we've hit the capacity and there's still people wanting to right. come. So um, that's been actually, we've been, we've been very, very pleased with the way retailers responded. And interesting as well, the average spend, is through the roof because no one's going to a shopping center now to just wander around. Right. Going because they're going, cause they're,
0: they're going to buy. And there's probably also a lot of pent up demand, right? And I think you're going to see that in the US too, which is, you know, people have not gone to stores for two to three, maybe even four months. So you're dealing with almost this false positive of what a return to normalcy in retail might look like because the spikes right about now as these centers reopen.
1: Exactly. And we'll see again in the future as you get more capacity to to um, to have more people in the centers where we see that same kind of growth. But and I said the early one, three weeks, we have data that some is three weeks, some are two weeks, some have only been open for a week because of when that region emerged from the last phase. So we're very early days in terms of having that data. But uh, but the early data is at least encouraging from that from that respect.
0: And one of the things I'm curious about is, I, I talked a lot to U.S. landlords about um, their response, but in Spain, w- w- was the relationship between, uh, you know, major private sector commercial real estate owner like yourselves and the local authorities different? Like, were they calling you and saying, hey, you should do this? Or was there that much interaction between the public officials and the private sector?
1: There was a lot of interaction, but it was not it, because it was all done very um, uh, consistently. So there wasn't a lot of bilateral. It was these are the things that you, as an owner of commercial, need to do. Mm-hmm. Boom. So every owner was then. And just um, out of
0: curiosity, was that done by the at the federal level, or was that done at the state level?
1: Done at the municipal level, municipal or what they call and span the, the, the community off, which is like the county, I guess, is the way there's the best yeah. U.S. Uh, so guidelines done federal level kind of broader guidelines. And then the implementation done at the, uh, at the municipal and county level. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and I said, the initial response to the crisis, you know, you could same questions that about, I think most regions with few exceptions, you know, Germany, I think, looked like they held it very well, were well-prepared. Uh, Spain wasn't well-prepared. Uh, so the same issues about not enough protective equipment, not enough contact tracing early on, not enough recognition of how problematic this virus really was. So the early period, uh, not um, not terribly well done. Since then... I think in terms of the response and, and the setting procedures and the reopening, it's been handled quite a bit better. And when you look at the decline curve, you know, the flattening of the curve, the decline curve, now you've, places like Spain um, are looking you know, quite good. Because even though the reopening has now been going on for three weeks, the rate of uh, infection has continued to decline. Hospitalization rates have continued to decline. So you haven't, you haven't seen a reemergence of the uh, contagion rate, even though the economy has been opening now for, for three weeks. And, and I think, you know, we were talking a little bit before you started recording, respect for the regulations uh, finding is quite high in Spain. You know, if you see people out, they're out with masks on. Uh, if there are limitations of no more than X number of people in a store, there's someone at the, at the front and they're monitoring how Enforcing many people in and out and people are respectful of that. No one's, you know, there are no, uh, there's no, uh, it's not been politicized. The health, health has not been politicized to the extent that it has certainly here in the U.S.
0: Wow. And I'm curious, David, what do you think, just looking at the office industry? I, I've asked this question to everyone that, that has commercial office exposure what are the trends that you think you can actually prognosticate on right now? Like what, what, what do you think are some of the insights that come out of this? And I'm, I'm curious in, in Merlin's case, Spain is a completely different culture than the U S and office culture is, I, I think also somewhat different. So what's uniquely Spanish. you think about those trends for, for Merlin in particular?
1: You know, I'll start with that because that is, you're absolutely <coughs> right. Culturally, Spain is very different. And even, it's funny, I have a conversation with uh, with my Spanish teacher, and she says, you need to understand, David, Sp- Spanish language, is, it's contact. You know, Amer- U.S. language, it's you say something, then I say something, and we have very closed sentences. You know, the Americans tend to say something definitive, And there's no real room for for a response. So that's not the way Spain works. Very open-ended conversations because you want someone to respond. So you always leave it open at the end of the conversation so that someone else can respond. People talk over each other all the time in Spain because that's part of the way it works. So it's much more social. And social interaction is much more ingrained in the culture in Spain. And you see why retail has performed, I think, much better in Spain than elsewhere because people—the idea of going out and interacting socially and shopping to get go together—well, so there's much more of a social implication. So uh, <clears throat> that said, when I look at kind of, um, that's why the market like, will react differently than it will in other places. But your original question. Um, that 's the sixty four thousand dollar question, and I, I, I think back and I always say it 's very difficult right now to be too predictive about what 's going to happen in the future because you 're still in the crisis yeah, and I remember after 9-11 when people were saying no one will ever work in a high rise building again, and corporations will have to have two headquarters or three head, or three different locations because They're not going to want to have a concentration of people in the same building. Uh, Cities, major cities, will see a bit of a decline because of this fear now. And you look, the only thing, forget travel, travel changed immensely, but the only thing in real estate that really came out of 9-11 was the disaster recovery center. People took big chunks of space in Jersey City, or they took big chunks of space south of the river in London to move somebody To, in case there was a, everyone had to work from home. And ironically, this experience probably does away with that because people realize now I don't need to pay all that money for a disaster recovery center. I can just send everybody home now. Um, But that was the only real change that came out of it. So I'm always cautious to say don't take too many definitive decisions until you have a clear picture of what the real change is going to be versus what people think the change is going to be. That said, there are a few things that I have a higher degree of confidence on that will change, I think. This move to higher density. You know, in a Spanish context, used to be 10 square meters per person was the density in the building. That had gone down to as low as four and five in some WeWork uh, centers. And so that move to higher density uh, I think at least gets uh, slowed down if not reversed, because people are not going to want to necessarily work in that close uh, together as they were previously and there was a little bit of a backlash to that anyway on health related you know not even related to health. people were talking about oh, this, productivity is not that great because people don't uh, <clears throat> there 's no space to have, a, have those those private conversations uh, there's an interruption of noise so I think lower the move to lower density probably um, slows down, maybe reverses. Mm-hmm. The second is flexibility. Uh, that again a trend that was already in place but I think all, companies are going to really look to even have greater flexibility on their workforce as a, you know saying maybe some will work from home, some will work closer to home, and some will continue to work in that main uh, that main uh, uh, location for, for the for the company, and so I think that will also be something that continues to come out of it. Uh, other things about you know will we entirely go to a a, um, a uh, work from home environment? I I I I think people are overestimating how long that will. How, how many people will actually work from home? Uh, but I, again, I do think you'll see more people working in different kinds of, uh, of, of of environments. And those are the two things that I have a really higher degree of confidence on. Other things like the decline of urbanization. Will we move to, again, uh, a more um, uh, suburban orientation? I'm not so sure about that. Uh, the decline of the, of the megacity. Mm-hmm. That I think is not a trend that will, you know, there'll be impacts in the in the in the near term, but long term, uh, I'm not so sure. The one other thing I do think will be a trend too is is because again, if you find that you can have people working from, from more people working from a just dis, uh, distributed workforce, I think some of these um, cities, like in the U.S. context, Austin, Texas, uh, Boise, Idaho, um, if you can now work from a lower cost environment, but you can now have a job that is a Silicon Valley job. So Silicon Valley job, but I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to pay a $4,000 a month for a 500 square foot apartment in San Francisco. I can actually live in Boise. I think that might, you know, might have some some impact. In Spain, less so because I don't think they're, you know, you don't have the same, you've got this dual duopoly of Madrid, Barcelona. And then if you drop from that, you're talking about cities that are that are significantly smaller, but in the U.S., I could see that happening.
0: Yeah, and I think I think we've we've frankly started to see this as as a company, which is um, you know as a venture firm, you get a sense of what tech firms are doing with their employees. And I'm here in Park City, and Salt Lake is 20 minutes away, and there's probably. 15 headquarters all of tech companies from silicon valley that have workforces here and many of them commute to salt lake from places like park city both because cost of living is lower but It's just obviously a very different lifestyle. So I do think in the u.s. You'll see more of that Um, i'm curious from your perspective obviously merlin's a company that that has looked very closely and committed to just innovation, you know at at your real estate assets and how do you think the the imperative for real estate owners to adopt technology changes as a result of COVID? Like, do you think tenants are going to be asking different kinds of questions on the other side of
1: this crisis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, this, this, that trend toward um, technology application to managing uh, to making health, healthier environments, more connection and contact with your tenants directly through different communication and, uh, and engagement apps to me, that just gets accelerated, accelerated by all of this. And I think particularly in the area of, of, um, of, uh, quality of environment, I think you're now going to have to be much more focused on the, how you're maintaining the quality of the interior environment of your building. What's the air quality, <clears throat> how are you measuring it? Um, what steps are you taking to ensure that uh, that the uh, sanitary conditions are, are are higher? So, how are you cleaning it? How, yeah, the more more the more contactless, I think, and the the less physical interaction, and the more um, technology interaction. I just think that's going to continue to be a trend because uh, no one thought of pandemic. It wasn't in anybody's um, Playbook, really. You know, when you think about all of the disaster and all of, when you when you do all of your planning at the board level for how you're going to react to different possible outcomes, right? I can tell you the pandemic wasn't in many people's. If it was, hats off to them. But there's no one, there's no one that I have now. It is, yeah. And so you have to be thinking about that uh, as to how you're going to be able to convince people that you have a, an environment that is. Uh, is healthier than uh, than uh, someone else's.
0: Absolutely, and I think it. We're seeing it across, you know, frankly, every category from hospitality to multifamily to office. Just owners um, have had to think about the public health dimensionality of a building in a way they 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 hadn't previously. And I will say, we didn't even see much of it on the tech side, right, until recently. Um, where you should be seeing these kind of forward trends. Um, But just in the last 90 days, that's changed. And so um, a lot of the just, you know, areas of innovation and opportunities to technologize assets, simple things like access control, just getting into and out of a building. There's now another reason to adopt that, which is if you can reduce the number, you know, I'm sure as you know, like of touch points, where a tenant is interacting with the physical asset, you reduce the exposure for all of those tenants. So,
1: and that's something, and no one, no one was really giving much thought to you before. And it raises an interesting question, actually, because um, I remember I was watching one of the interviews you were doing early on. It was the, it was the, I think it might have been the first one, as a matter of fact. And uh, the conversation came up about jurisdiction, mm-hmm. right? Who has Who's got what jurisdiction? Because we've yeah. been having this conversation about there may be things that I want to do in my building, but the ten- with the way the lease agreements are currently written, some of that falls on the tenant themselves. And then if I've done a third-party contract for cleaning, I have to start to dictate in that contract how that cleaning might be done. Um, then there are going to be regulations that are put on by local authorities as to what minimum standards you need to have. So this is going to be a changing landscape and overlapping jurisdictions that previously it was, okay, you're responsible for this. I'm responsible for that. They're responsible for that. Now it's going to be more of a shared responsibility, I think, for a lot of this. And that's something that's going to uh, evolve over time. And in a lot of ways, I think it's a positive thing because it's going to force that, that old tenant landlord relationship, which was very much of a counterparty relationship. Again, real estate had already, already been moving in the direction of more service orientation than yeah. pure investment orientation. This is going to accelerate that even further because you're, the number of conversations you're going to have to have with your tenant beyond simply the financial terms of a lease are now going to have to expand even, even further. So it's going to require a much greater um, dialogue than happened previously.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's odd to consider that, you know, if you're signing a five-year lease, it's very likely, or say a 10 year lease, it's very likely that you're going to be having a conversation like this conversation to some extent with your landlord during that time period. Just statistically, you know, we're likely going to experience something like this again. And so, you know, ensuring that, you know, as a landlord, you can say, I have the right communication tools. I have your best interests at heart. I have the, the tools and the solutions that enabled me to protect your tenants is obviously incredibly important. So, um, and I
1: think it leads to something else, Brendan, that, you know, this is one of the things that people have been talking about coming out of this crisis again, um, generally, not just with respect to real estate, which is, um, you know, the big get bigger. So in retail, Walmart and Amazon are going to come out of this even further dominating the retail space Um, I think the same thing is true as offices because if you're a small family owner of five buildings you just can't possibly do the things you're gonna need to do you don't have the scale to make the investment and you don't have the breadth to have those conversations and relationships so I think this could be a differentiating factor for the larger owners because we are going to do this across the entire portfolio. In fact, we had a $4 million budget just for actions we to take to reopen our buildings. Wow. From... from better air circulation, ventilation, from putting in all the, dis- the dispensers. In our, in our shopping centers, we put in these self-sanitizing handrails on all of our escalators. So they, they, they literally, as they're revolving, they're being sanitized. Um, so all these things that we've had to do, a small owner is just not going to be able uh, to do that. And now as we talk about in future buildings, what kind of air circulation we need to have. We're going to be having to change. And fortunately, we're in the middle of our CapEx program, so we still have some time to make adjustments, but we're going to, have to adjust how air circulation is done, the intensity of the air circulation. If I own a single building, I'm, I'm, I, I don't have the capacity to do that. So I think this is also, in the real estate space, going to um, make the bigger owners a little more attractive for for those uh, for those tenants and, and we we're looking at it as how can we make it a differentiating factor. Yeah. The fact that we're doing this, if you read the Spanish press, we're advertising it all over the place as to what we're doing in terms of uh, investment to, to reopen because I think it will be a differentiating factor.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really interesting point that that's probably true globally, but maybe especially true in, in Spain, it sounds like because there is a more granular ownership base to assets, mm-hmm. which is there's so many aspects now of being a landlord that require scale. It's, it's very hard to be a one-off recreational landlord nowadays between investments in technology, amenitizing and servicing kind of the, the, the needs of tenants, which are just always growing, right, and are, have been growing for the last decade. Um, When you think about sustainability and decarbonization and the investments that owners are going to have to make to reduce the carbon footprint of their assets. Now you think about the public health and air quality control technologies. It's just, it's an enormous amount that if you can't defray that offer over a huge portfolio, it's very hard for an individual owner to keep up. And I imagine that's especially true in Spain.
1: It is. And and, uh, and again, I think I think it's only going to get even more even more uh, pronounced over time because those tenants are becoming much more aware of even from an ESG perspective, they're becoming more aware of the buildings they're going into because they have their own um, uh, agenda with regard to ESG, and that's been been uh, been uh, uh, a factor going forward. You know, not unrelated to COVID, but we you know when you talk about how are you making your, your portfolios more uh, sustainable, we had just embarked on a program. We're putting photovoltaic panels on all of our, uh, roofs of all of our warehouse logistics centers and then selling, you know, selling that energy to the individual tenants. And first we can reduce their energy costs by about 25%. And they can use that as a, as a, um, uh, from a, uh, Public image standpoint, corporate image standpoint, to promote that they're generating their or, or uh, that they're consuming their power is all renewable, and then we can sell the excess back to the grid. So that's something that we've been doing on the on the energy side to become uh, more sustainable. And that just adds again on top of what we were just saying about all the different investment required to make sure that you're operating at the uh, at the forefront.
0: Absolutely. well David this has been so interesting um, thanks for taking the time to chat and it was especially fascinating to learn the the, the history of of, of Merlin um, and so at some point I'd love to talk more just about the dynamics of how the Spanish just real estate industry is is changing and institutionalizing based on what we've just discussed at the end here so
1: well my, my pleasure and uh, you know you're always welcome I know you come to Madrid often actually because we <laughs> We've had a few interactions there. So you're always welcome to come when things start to settle down. we uh, we'll have a nice, uh, a nice, uh, Spanish dinner, enjoy a good Spanish bottle of wine and we could talk Spanish real estate. I'd love that. Great. Well, well, thanks, David. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, and Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of fly on the wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.